0: God we pause and we are reminded of the words of Jesus in John chapter 15 that apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus said I'm the vine and you are the branches apart from me you can bear no fruits. God we are reminded that even as we look to your word, God we are fully dependent on not only understanding your word but being transformed by it. God we we don't just want head knowledge today, we want our hearts to be changed. God, we want to walk out of here different looking more and more like jesus so god would you do that work this morning through first samuel 13 we pray in christ's name amen i heard a story uh, about a man who stopped by the grocery store to pick up a few items on the way home from work and typically how men usually shop he was kind of wandering around aimlessly from aisle to aisle And as often is the case when you're in the grocery store, he kept running into the same shopper in almost every aisle. It was another father who was trying to shop, but he was with his totally uncooperative three-year-old boy who was in the cart. And the first time that he passed them, he he was hearing the the three-year-old boy demand a candy bar again and again. And he overheard the dad say, now, Billy, this won't take long. As they passed over the next aisle, he heard the three-year-old boy uh, yell even louder for this candy bar. And he heard the dad quietly say, Billy, just calm down. We'll be done in a moment. When they passed near the the dairy aisle, the the kid was just screaming uncontrollably. And and yet the dad was just keeping his cool, saying in a very low voice, Billy, settle down. We're almost out of here. The dad and his son reached the checkout line. And again, the dad gave no evidence of losing his cool. He was just calm and collected. The boy now was kicking and screaming. And yet the dad just said in a calm voice over and over again, Billy, we're going to be in the car in just a minute and everything will be okay. This bystander was so impressed by this dad's example that he paid for his groceries and ran out into the parking lot to catch him. And, and as he approached him in the parking lot, he heard the dad say once again, Billy, we're done. It's going to be okay. And he, he tapped the father on the shoulder and he said, sir, I couldn't help but watch how you handled little Billy. You were amazing. And the dad looked at him very confused and he said, little Billy, oh, you don't get it, do you? I'm Billy. That story is it's funny, but <laughs> I'm going to tuck that in my back pocket next time I'm at the grocery store. <laughs> the story raises the question, how do you get through moments, um, not, not just when you're in the grocery store, but, but how do you get through even seasons of life that demand patient endurance? All right, what do you do when you are in a season of waiting? Waiting maybe something for God to do, maybe for God to, to speak or show you something, or, or waiting for your circumstances to change. We all struggle with patience, don't we? But waiting is so, so hard. We are a people who value speed and efficiency and immediate gratification, right? This is why people don't like uh, red traffic lights and long lines and waiting rooms. We, we don't even like when we're texting a friend and we see those three little dots show up. Like they're, they're getting a response, but it's taking forever, right? Time is money. We, we'd rather just do about anything else than wait. Now, waiting on people or traffic lights to turn green or waiting for UPS packages to be delivered, that's one thing. But what do you do when you're waiting on God? What do you do when you're waiting on God and it seems like he's late? Theologically, we know he's never late, but it feels like he's delaying for some reason. Do we just copy Billy (laughs) with this positive self-talk? It's gonna be okay, we're gonna get through this. Or does the scripture speak to something else that we're to do? And maybe the most important question is what happens when you fail to wait well? The reason why I'm asking these questions and acknowledging the difficulty of waiting and the fact that we drift towards impatience is because in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul, the king of Israel, found himself in a position of waiting. And he thought that God was late. And yet his response to God being late revealed the true condition of Of his heart. And the same is true for you and for me. What we're gonna see is that through Saul's poor example, we're going to learn the danger of failing to wait on the Lord well. Now, because we have taken kind of a break throughout the summer on 1 Samuel, I just wanna kind of catch us up and remind us of all that we've seen throughout these first 12 chapters. As I've said many times before, one of the the best verses to summarize the condition of God's people during this time is actually found in the last verse in the book of Judges. There's some overlap between what happens in Judges, what happens in 1 Samuel. The last verse there, it says, Judges chapter 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Right? So there's this morality crisis, but also a leadership void. There's no one to lead God's people. And so with that as kind of the backdrop, we we, uh, learn in the first couple of chapters, we're kind of reading these first two chapters and we're leaning in as we're introduced to Elkanah and his wife, Hannah, who after years of painful infertility, they have this miraculous birth to a boy named Samuel. Hannah had prayed and prayed for this child. And as readers, we wonder, could Samuel be not only the answer to Hannah's prayers, but could Samuel be the answer to Israel's leadership crisis? Well Samuel grows and the end of chapter two and chapter three, we have this theme of comparison between Samuel's growing ministry in comparison to Eli, the current priest at the time, and his two boys and their diminishing uh, ministry. But then chapters four through six, Samuel just kind of steps off the scene there. We don't really hear from him. And what steps onto the scene is the Ark of the Covenants. And then Israel's primary enemy, the Philistines. And that's intentional because chapters four through six, as we saw, shows us what happens to God's people when they no longer turn to God or follow God's leader. We saw how the Ark of the Covenant was captured that Eli and his two sons were killed and the Philistines just dominated the Israelites in battle. And yet God in chapter six, single-handedly, without the help of his people, secured the ark back into Israel's territory and defeated the Philistines, showing us that God doesn't need his people, God is self-sufficient. Then in chapter seven, it's kind of a high point in the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel steps back onto the scene and he leads God's people in a powerful moment of individual and corporate repentance, that peace and order are restored as Samuel leads well. He's teaching, he's praying, he's judging, and everything seems to be going well, which very much surprised us when we got to chapter eight and Israel starts to demand a king. Uh, Israel had been operating under this leadership model that was somewhat outdated in their minds. They had these judges that were leading them. Judges are not kings, judges were these temporary leaders filled with the Spirit of God for a specific task and then they'd step off the scene, they'd transition out. For the Israelites, they wanted something more um, up to date. They wanted a king, but their motivation was to be just like all the other nations. So despite Samuel warning them this is not a good idea, reminding them God is their king, it's God who tells Samuel Give them what they are asking for. Give them a king. So chapter 9, we learn that Saul was chosen to be the first king of Israel in an act of incredible sovereignty and God's providence that was on display. Chapter 10, Saul is anointed. And chapter 11, uh, Saul leads God's people in a powerful military victory over the Ammonites. And we kind of looked at that, how, man, this new model seems to be working well. Saul is starting to step up and lead uh, well. Then we got to chapter 12 and Samuel addresses God's people uh, one final time in somewhat of a farewell address. He exhorts them, obey God. And then he paints them a picture of what it would look like for this new leadership model to work. He says, God is first and then God's prophet is second. And then it's God's king. And he kind of left them with this fork in the road moment. Will Saul and God's people follow and submit to the Lord, or will they go their own way? Well, in chapter 13, we, we pick up the story again, and it doesn't take long for us to answer that question. Verses one through seven, we learn that trouble is brewing. And we look at verse one, and verse one begins with immediate confusion. It says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel. Uh, This verse is very confusing because we know that Saul did not become king at age one. And we know that according to Acts 13, that Saul actually reigned for 40 years. So to make sense of this, what I think this verse is saying, when it says that Saul lived for one year and then became king, that's likely referring to the length of time uh, surrounding those unusual circumstances in chapters 10 and 11, where uh, Saul was kind of chosen, he was anointed, and it took some time for him to eventually be installed as king. That took about one year. But then the second half of, fr- of the phrase in verse one, when it says that he reigned for two years over Israel, well, that likely refers to the period of time in which Saul was installed as king, and then in chapter 15, when God rejected him as king. So it's a two-year process from chapters 13, 14, and 15. So even though God rejects him as king in chapter 15, Saul's gonna reign for another 30-something years even after that, which is a whole other problem that we'll get to in a few weeks. Now, all of that's important because verse one is preparing us for what is to come in this chapter. That something drastic occurs with Saul and God's confidence in him. That trouble is brewing, but not just the fact with the Philistines, this sleeping giant that that awakens, but trouble is brewing with Saul's role as king. We're told in verse two that Saul had assembled this standing army. Uh, 2,000 men with Saul, 1,000 with his son, Jonathan. Before the monar- monarchy, the Israelites never had this standing army. They would only uh, kind of rally the troops when there was a crisis. And yet the concern here was the expulsion of the Philistines from the heart of Saul's kingdom, which leads to verse 3. Uh, Jonathan has this great victory, and it appears to be a source of celebration until you get to verse 5. And we learn in verse 5 that the sleeping bear, the sleeping giant, the Philistines, are awake and they are mad. Jonathan defeated the governor of the Philistines at Geba, and news began to spread. Saul uses this as kind of a positive PR and announces it to all the Israelites. And notice he took credit for the victory, even though it was Jonathan. Jonathan. The Philistines respond with might. They assemble 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and they are encamped at Michmash, just a few miles to the southeast of Bethel. But did you notice how they are described? They're described as having so many men like the sand on the seashore. Does that remind you of Something should remind you of one element in God's covenantal promises that he made to his people all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Even though Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren, God promised you're gonna have many, 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 many descendants like that of the sand on the seashore. Well, now that description is now being applied to the Philistines. It's 36,000 Philistines versus 3,000 Israelites. Not good. Which makes sense of what happens in verses 6 and 7. The Israelites run and they hide, only a small amount, six with Saul at Gilgal. They are terrified, they are afraid, and it's clear trouble is brewing. But when we move to verses 8 through 15, the scene kind of zooms in on Saul. And we read verses 8 through 15, and it feels like an overreaction from Samuel. I don't know if you felt that way. We're going to learn that Saul's kingdom is is going to be handed to another. Like he's done at this point. And we read this, and I don't know if, as Brett was reading that. It's like, man, like what did Saul do that was so bad? Like did Samuel just wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Like what is happening here for Saul's rule as king to be ended here? Well, in order for us to understand what's happening, we need to recall that earlier conversation that Samuel had with Saul in chapter 10, verses seven through eight, that he gave Samuel twofold instruction that was very clear. He told Saul to first attack the Philistine presence at Gibeah, and then secondly, he was to go down to Gilgal and wait for seven full days At that point, Samuel would arrive and Samuel would perform the sacrifices and then Samuel would give Saul further instruction. He lays that out there for him. And yet what we see Saul do here is kind of the opposite of that. Now, you, you might push back a little bit. You might say, well, Chris, verse eight, it clearly says Saul waited seven days and there's no sign of Samuel anywhere. Where is Samuel? Why is he late? This isn't on Saul. This is Samuel's fault. And look, we can almost feel sorry for Saul. I mean, he's in quite a predicament here. You get this enormous army, the Philistines, who are mad, and they have Saul and his men on the run. And yet Saul does tell his men, hey, we've got to wait. Like God told me through Samuel, I've got to wait seven full days. And so day one comes and he waits. Day two comes and he waits. Day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven comes and he's looking, has anybody seen Samuel? Where is Samuel? Have you seen Samuel anywhere? And he panics. Saul gets tired of waiting. He looks around and his men are starting to desert him, are starting to scatter. His army is shrinking and the Philistines are about to pounce on them. And so he thinks, man, I need God's favor. I'm just going to perform the sacrifices. Even though that was something only the priest, Samuel, should have done. Saul got tired of waning and said, man, I had to do something. Isn't that good leadership? And I wonder, you know, could it be that part of us feel sorry for Saul because I wonder if it's because some of us are in a season right now that feels awfully similar to Saul's. That you know exactly what Saul must have felt because right now you're in a season of waiting on God. I wonder if there's a part of us that looks at Saul and like, man, I kind of understand what he's going going through because I'm waiting on God to give me direction, to give me clarity. Maybe you're saying to yourself, I'm waiting on God to heal something or fix something or restore something or open a door, and yet you're getting nothing. You're getting silence from God. That's what Saul felt like for seven long, terrible days. That Some of us in this room are waiting to get pregnant. You've been waiting for years and it's just not happening. You're praying and you're trusting and you're hoping and nothing's happening. It's just silence. Some of us are waiting on a job or waiting for something at work to get fixed or addressed and yet nothing is happening. Some of us are waiting on news from a doctor to come in and and you're waiting, but man, it's hard to wait. Some of us are waiting on a child to return back to the Lord and you're just just waiting and nothing is happening. Some of us are waiting on a relationship to to be restored or waiting for a trial to pass and yet nothing is happening. You're just getting silence from God. And look, you may not have a large army breathing down your neck, but nonetheless, you are feeling what perhaps Saul was feeling, this internal pressure, these moments of panic, waves of fear, sprinkles of doubts, unmet expectations, unfulfilled desires. Look, if you're in that place this morning if I could just encourage you with one thing, I would, I would remind you today that God wants to do something in you much more than doing something for you. God wants to do something in you much more than doing something for you, that God will not waste your waiting. God will use this season to to teach you and to grow you and to shape you. That oftentimes what God does in these seasons of waiting, he strips everything that we are tempted to grab a hold of, like comfort and control and stability. He strips us of all that. So it's just you and him. He, He removes the clarity. He removes the comfort, removes the stability, removes all the clutter that's in our hearts, so that the good and loving surgeon can do a deep work in our hearts. that God wants to do something in you much more than he wants to do something for you. And if you don't remember that in times of waiting, you will be tempted to respond to those seasons in a similar way as Saul. How did Saul respond to the season? He got tired of waiting. He took matters into his own hands. He sought out control and he performs these sacrifices despite that being the role that only priests were to do. He panics and he chooses expediency over obedience. He chooses action over trust. And I wonder if, if you're in a season of waiting, are you tempted to do the same? Is there something in you right now that's like, I gotta do something, I've gotta do just anything? That's exactly what Saul does here. Saul chooses to live by sight rather than by faith. And that's what periods of waiting does. It, it reveals things underneath the surface in our hearts. That God uses those times to, to maybe even reveal areas of unbelief in our hearts, that have just been hiding out in there, that that you were unaware of. That, That as we wrestle with God about why he's not working in this way at this speed, could it be that we find underneath those thoughts is a heart that's been drifting toward unbelief for some time, and yet we didn't know it. Or we don't arrive at unbelief just overnight. It's usually a process. It's these small seeds of unhealthy doubts that are left unchallenged that begin to grow. Like these thoughts that we have in times of waiting, these thoughts that we have about God, "Of God, are you there? God, are you working at all? God, have you forgotten me? Those thoughts can grow into something more drastic. Like, God, do you even know what you're doing? God, are you in control at all? God, are you truly good? And it's in these moments of, of impatience that our unbelief is revealed. It's these moments of, of seeking control that unbelief is demonstrated. Happen to Saul, it, is that happening to you right now? As painful as it is, waiting reveals who you are and what you truly trust Now, verse ten tells us that it's basically right as Saul had finished up with these sacrifices, that Samuel shows up. <laughs> Just almost like he finishes up, and there, there he is. In verse eleven, he asks Saul, "Saul, what have you done? What have you done?" We've seen that question before, haven't we? Genesis chapter four, verse ten, after Cain murdered his brother, God comes to him and says, what have you done? It's a rhetorical question, a question of rebuke. And yet notice Saul's response, verse 11. He answers Samuel not by taking responsibility for his lack of trust, but makes excuses, three of them to be exact. First, he tries to justify his actions by saying the people were scattering. Secondly, He blame shifts to Samuel, says, you were late. Where were you? And then thirdly, he says, the Philistines were about to to pounce on us. He's just justifying his actions. Yet notice Samuel's response in verse 13, you have done foolishly. Wow. He's starting to put the hammer down on Saul. You have done foolishly that when you fail to wait well, you are acting like a fool. Reminds me of Psalm 14.1. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, of course, Saul knew that God existed. He acknowledged God's existence or presence in his life. But the Psalm says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, not his mind. So a fool is someone who might acknowledge the existence of God, but in his heart and his desires and his decisions and how he lives his life, as if God doesn't exist. A functional atheist, if you will. Well, that's not the only response to Saul. Samuel goes on in verses 13, 14, and 15 with devastating news. He essentially tells him that his kingdom will be given to another, that his reign will not continue because of his disobedience. And notice verse 14, who will it be given to? A man after God's own heart. He's talking about David here. We're going to get introduced to David in chapter 16. And David is described as a man after God's own heart, but we tend to misunderstand that phrase. I don't wanna burst anybody's bubble here, but this phrase, we, we sometimes understand this as, oh, that's referring to David's godliness. That, that's referring to the fact that David, uh, his heart just, it, it really imitated God's. And then you think about that, well David did some really bad things. Committed adultery, he murdered, he abused his power, he had several acts of distrust toward the Lord doesn't seem like a man after God's own part, even though he repented well. What this phrase really means, and to understand it, we have to understand how the Hebrew understands heart. Heart is the the seat of the will. It is the decision-making center, if you will. So this phrase, it's not necessarily referring to David's godliness or David's heart, but it's saying that David is a man of God's choice, David is a man that lines up with God's will. So less about David and really more about God. David is God's choice here. And so we'll get to know David in a few chapters, but notice Saul's impatience, his fearful response to waiting leads not only to the end of his rule as king, which weirdly enough won't take fruition until another 30 something years, but his impatience doesn't actually fix the situation. We move into verses 15 through 23, and we see this hopeless situation that's before Saul. For verse 15, I think this is one of the saddest verses in all of 1 Samuel. Like Saul can number the troops. He's got 600 now. It goes from 3,000 to 600, but that's all that he can do. Saul has lost what matters most. He has lost God's confidence and now is relationally cut off from God's prophet, Samuel. And it's a strange response by Saul, isn't it? I mean, you have this profound and devastating pronouncement that your rule as king is over. And verse 15 just says that Samuel just arose and left. Like there's no evidence of Saul repenting, being remorseful, throwing himself upon God's mercy. It just says that Samuel left. That Samuel, perhaps even symbolically, this represents the departure of God's word and God's direction and God's favor over Saul. See, the hopeless situation here is actually on two different levels. One level, it's on the physical kind of military situation that's absolutely hopeless. You've got 36,000 Philistines who are mad compared to 600, and the Israelites have no blacksmith. And so they're not only being overcharged for, to use their farming tools, but only Saul and Jonathan have swords. That, that is bad news, right? And the Philistines are doing whatever they wanna do, all these raids in verses 17 through 18. So yes, that is a hopeless situation, but the second level has to do with the fact that the word of the Lord has departed from the king of Israel, Saul. God's hand is no longer on him. And so we have this scene that's being set for us in chapter 14, a hopeless situation for God's people. One can't help but wonder what would have happened if Saul would have just waited well. Maybe take advice from Billy in the beginning, just, just wait on the Lord. And yet Samuel does tell us what would have happened, verse 13. If he would have obeyed God, then his kingdom would have continued. And yet chapter 13 shows us once again that Saul is not the one true king that God's people need. Even David, the next king, as amazing as he is, he has flaws. He's not the one true king that God's people need. We've seen time and time again, example after example in the life of Saul, all these failures that point us forward to the one true King, Jesus Christ, who had no flaws, who was perfect, who is perfect, who submitted to the Father perfectly. And even in a season of waiting that Jesus had, he waited upon his Father perfectly that if you recall a thousand years from 1 Samuel chapter 13 in a garden about 34 miles southwest of Gilgal, Jesus in Matthew 26 is waiting. In the garden of Gethsemane, he, he's waiting just hours before he endures the cross. And in that setting there, in that position, Jesus is sweating drops of blood He's waiting and he's, he's wanting this cup of suffering to pass. And yet Jesus did what Saul could not do. He waited well and he submitted to the father. And he said, not what I want, not my will, but your will be done. And he obeys the father with perfection. See, Jesus' obedience led him directly to the cross. The cross where the perfect Sinless Lamb of God died for sinners. That Jesus died in order to set his people free from the power and the penalty of sin. That Jesus died in order for us to be forgiven and for us to dwell with God forever and ever. That Jesus died so that he might be raised to life by the power of God and be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That Jesus died in order to save you. You could not save yourself. Your good works can't save you. Church attendance cannot save you. Only faith in the Lord Jesus can save you. Throwing yourself upon his grace and his mercy and saying, Jesus is my king. I will bow to him. See this chapter, it shows us the beginning of the end of Saul's reign and yet, we are reminded that Jesus is the one true king whose reign has no end, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, whose kingdom will go on forever and ever. That Jesus is a king worth waiting for, worth trusting in, worth obeying. And just to remind us, as we close this morning, look, God's delay is not God's denial. God's delay in and through Samuel was not God's denial of Saul as king. It was Saul's disobedience that led to God's denial as Saul as king. And I know as you walk through seasons of waiting, seasons where it feels like God is silent, it can feel like God has abandoned you. It can feel like God has cut you off. He's turned away, and yet don't believe those lies. That God's delay, which we know theologically he's never delaying, he's always on time. But when it feels like God is, is just causing us to wait, I just want to remind you that his cause for waiting are, are always good reasons. That sometimes he wants us to wait in order for growth to take root in our hearts. Uh, sometimes he causes us to wait because he has something better for us down the road. Or maybe he causes us to wait because we're not ready to receive what he has for us in that moment, and he needs to do further work in our hearts. Whatever the case is, be reminded this morning that God is in the waiting, right? He's not just in answered prayers. He's not just in these tangible blessings. He's not in these clear workings in our life. God is in the waiting. He's in those times of silence, That even when you can't feel it, God is actually with you. You may not know why God is having you in a season of waiting, but you can still trust and depend upon him. That as you wait faithfully, he is doing a work in you, forming you in the image of Christ. God is that good. He is good. Let's pray together. God, we give you praise, Lord, for your sovereign and eternal plan. Lord, we confess that we don't always see what you're doing in our lives. God, things happen, and we take a step back, and we want to question. We might even want to doubt you, and yet, God, remind us that because you are good, because you are all-powerful, because you are sovereign, Lord, everything that happens in our lives, you use for our good and for our growth. Lord, I pray specifically for those who are in this room who are in a hard season of waiting, Lord, they feel like you are silent right now. God, would you give them grace to be faithful, to trust, and to be obedient upon you, to not grab hold of control or comfort in other ways, but to wait and to wait faithfully. God, give them grace and strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.